last several weeks, I have been intentionally taking you on a rather long journey to lay a foundation for faith. I have been building the case that general revelation, that is revelation from creation, consciousness, and conscience, lead us to the conclusions that a creator exists, that this creator, God, is powerful, having immense power and resources to make everything that exists, and that this creator God is intelligent, possessing the knowledge, the understanding and wisdom to make all things that he has made. Furthermore, I have argued that when using consciousness, we can infer from everything that we see in creation around us and what God has made within us, that this God who creates is good and true, loving, beautiful, moral, and that he wants to be known by his creation. All of this, as I have said, falls under a category within theology called general revelation. Knowledge of these things is generally available to any person in any place at any time throughout history. In Psalm 19, King David effectively says that this general revelation is constantly proclaiming God's existence day and night, endlessly in every single language. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul further explains that we are without excuse as it relates to acknowledging God's existence. In other words, these things are self-evidently true, but this general revelation has its limits. General revelation is considerably limited as it relates to the nature and will of this creator. If there is a creator as creation, consciousness, and conscience demonstrate, then what is this creator like? What does this creator like? What does this creator want? What is this creator's reason for creating? Does the creator create for a purpose? These are all important questions. The answers to which are, I would suggest, unknowable through just general revelation. Therefore, we need an apocalypse of God. We need the creator to reveal himself by some form of communication that is intelligible to us. We cannot know the creator in any real relational way without a greater revelation than general revelation. Therefore, we need what theologians would call special revelation. And though the rational skeptics of our day are skeptical of the idea of such a thing as special revelation, I argued in my previous message that God, the creator, has at various times and in various ways spoken in times past in language that is intelligible to us so that we might know what he is like, his nature, and that we might know what he likes, his will, so that we might know him, that we might be able to have a relationship with this God who is knowable. So my aim in this series so far has been to introduce you to the unknown God. God desires us to know that he exists and he wants to reveal his nature and will to us so that we might know him. And I think it is rational for us to believe that God exists. And I believe that it is possible for us to know of God's nature and will through this special revelation. But I want to move from there 
to say that God wants us to know him, not just know about him, to know things about his nature, about his will. God desires that we have a relationship with him. And this leads us to another stopping point. As I've said before, general revelation has its limits. It's limited in what we can know. We can know that God exists, that he is powerful and that he is intelligent. We can infer by looking at creation and considering the way that we are made as well, we can infer, infer certain things about God, but we can't really know exactly what he is like and what he likes, his nature and his will. So special revelation is so that we might know what God is like and what he likes. But special revelation has its limits as well. We need a greater revelation than these two, general and special revelation. To illustrate this, let me give you a little anecdote. Imagine that I were single. I'm not, I'm married. But imagine that I were single and I was working in a coffee shop and I'm behind the counter making drinks and other little treats and so forth. And I notice while I'm working that this really cute girl comes in and she buys something to drink and then she sits down with her girlfriend and they do a Bible study together. And I see her do this a number of times. And I want to get to know this girl in hopes that maybe we might be able to have a friendship or a relationship. But I have a problem. This cute girl, she doesn't really seem to notice me. Or at least I don't think that she has noticed me. So perhaps I could make myself known by making special treats and leaving them for her at her table. And maybe she'll find these treats and then hopefully she'll be compelled to try and find out where these things are coming from and why she is receiving them. And maybe she'll start to piece it all together and then maybe one day she'll notice me. But then I notice as she continues to come in and I'm trying to get her attention that she begins to develop a friendship with one of the girls that I work with. So I decide to tell my friend, my coworker, I'd really like to get to know that girl. And so is there any chance that you could give her a message and tell her that there is a guy here who has been making these treats for her and that he's interested in getting to know her? Now I could try to develop a friendship and potentially a relationship with this cute girl through a proxy, through my friend, my coworker, sending messages back and forth through this other individual. But it's very hard to develop a friendship or a relationship in that way. There are things that just don't work by proxy. Things get lost in transmission and lost in translation and things get mixed up and convoluted. Such communication isn't really ideal if the intent is relationship. So if I really want to know this girl and her to know me, then I need a much better way of communication, which would require personal interaction. I would have to reveal myself to her personally. Now, I hope through my corny anecdote that you're beginning to see my point. And um, full disclosure, my story is actually pretty close to the way that that little anecdote played out some 16 years ago. I was working at a coffee shop that our church was operating here in town. And this cute girl started coming in and doing a Bible study with her friend. And this cute girl began talking with a coworker of mine who knew that I wanted an opportunity to meet this girl. And so one afternoon, my coworker called me and she said, hey, that girl that you're interested in meeting, she's coming over to my house and 
we're going to go bowling tonight. And I thought that if you just happen to be at my house when she shows up, then maybe you would be able to go bowling with us. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. And soon after that, I revealed my feelings to this girl. And seven months later, we got married. And 15 years later, we have four kids and a dog and a hedgehog and a guinea pig and a chinchilla and a tortoise and a leopard gecko and three rabbits and a house and two cars. Uh, we don't have a partridge in a pear tree, but I think you get the story. My story is kind of corny, but it is also something of a parallel to what I've been talking about in general and special revelation, that these things are limited. I could try to reveal that I'm around by leaving little things along the way that she might come to realize that there's someone behind these gifts and these sort of things. Or I might speak to her through special revelation by sharing messages through a proxy that gives information to this person. But if I want a relationship, then that needs to move to a different level of communication, to what we would call personal revelation. The creator that made this, this box, this universe that we're inside of, this creator is outside of the box, the universe. And so to reveal himself fully to those inside the box whom he made for a purpose and to have relationship with them, he needs to step inside the box. He has to come down to our level. He needs to move beyond general revelation and special revelation to personal revelation. And that is exactly what the Bible describes. That's exactly what the Bible says happened, which I recognize is far out. And to a lot of people, the skeptical kind of people, and maybe you're a skeptic watching this, for a lot of the skeptics, that seems like a crazy story. It seems incredible, hard to grasp. It is at least impossible or highly improbable. And for us to believe that this kind of personal revelation is true, we need some proof. We need some form of assurance to know that this is true. And that's where we left off in our study last time. In the book of Acts chapter 17, Paul is seeking to make known the unknown God to a group of people who were skeptical of the things that he had to say, a group of philosophers in the city of Athens. And so he's trying to make known the unknown God and he presents some amazing things about the unknown God so as to disclose God's nature. I gave you more than a dozen of these things that Paul reveals in Acts chapter 17 last week. Things like God is a person and not some impersonal force. That God is creator. He is the maker of all things. That God is the giver and sustainer of life. The one who gave life to everything that's inside of this box. We also read there in Acts chapter 17 that God is not distant but near. We might say that he is both transcendent and imminent. And Paul knows that the people he is talking to in Athens in Acts chapter 17, 2,000 years ago, he knows that they're not stupid. These were the wise guys of the first century, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of his day. And he presents all of these great things about the unknown God. And then he acknowledges that this stuff that he's sharing with them, it, it seems incredible. It seems far out. And he says, I want to give you proof an assurance that these things are true. And that's what we need when we're talking about the big things of God like Paul is in this passage. We need an assurance. And so Paul says in Acts chapter 17 in verse 
31. He says, God has given assurance of all of this by raising Jesus from the dead. So I have spent the previous three weeks and now like three and a half weeks to get to this point. God has revealed himself through what he has made, general revelation, so that we would be compelled to seek him. And he has revealed himself to those that seek him in intelligible ways so that we might know his nature and his will. That's special revelation. And then God goes further than that. And what the Bible says is that God became a human being so that we would be able to have relationship with him. And this is what we would call personal revelation. So these three are really important. General revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, night unto night they give forth language. Uh, so they're, they're telling us about God's existence. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so that we are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1. That's general revelation. Then special revelation, God through individuals who the Bible calls prophets or seers. God reveals his nature, what's he, what he is like, and his will, what he likes. But these things are limited. They, they can only go so far, especially if God's intent, his purpose, is to have relationship with those that he has made. So for that, there needs to be this third form of revelation, personal revelation. So here's what I hope that I'm able to do at this point over this message and my message next week. And in one sense, I, I kind of feel the pressure on this because I've given myself just the month of August to go through all this. I mean, I could go longer, but I'm trying to pull all this together today and in my message next time. And I feel like there's a lot I want to get forward in these messages. So I've been trying to pull this all together. I need to show you this week and next week that this seemingly far out story, first, it's in the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches us. And then secondly, I want to show you that this is not only what the Bible says, but that you should trust that this is evidentially true, that it is historically true, that there is evidence in not just the study of the scriptures, but also throughout history, there's evidence to show that these things are true. Paul talks about there in verse 31 of Acts chapter 17, that God has given us assurance that these things are true through raising Jesus from the dead. So I want to zero in on that. So first, I want to show you that this is what the Bible says. This is the story that the Bible gives. Second, I want to show you that this story that the Bible gives, that we can, we can have assurance that it's true through evidence. And then my hope is that I want to drive this home to show you what this means for us and how we should respond to this. That if this is true, what does that mean for us? How shall we then live if the things that the Bible says are actually true? So first, is this really what the Bible teaches? Well, I've brought up this passage of scripture a number of times over the last several weeks in Hebrews chapter one. And I, I kind of mentioned it this morning without saying the verse, but in Hebrews chapter one, at verse one, the author of the book of Hebrews, he says there, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past through the fathers by the prophets. The author of Hebrews goes on from there and he says that God has, in verse 2, in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the author of the book of Hebrews here is saying that God in various times, in various ways, spoke in times past to the Jewish fathers, the Hebrew fathers, through the prophets. But now he's spoken to us 
in these last days by his son. Verse 2, he has spoken to us in these last days by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The Bible teaches that Jesus is a man with the nature of God. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews there in Hebrews chapter 1 is making very, very clear. That God spoke in times past through special revelation, through prophets to the fathers of the nation of Israel, but now he speaks to us through his son, personal revelation. And his son is the one who's the express image of the father. He has the very nature of the father. So when we go to the biblical story, the Bible teaches that Jesus is a man, and, and I would say capital M, man, with the nature of God. That's what it means to be the son of God. My son has my nature, a human nature. The, the son, the offspring of a horse has a horse nature. So the son of God is just a, a title that says that this individual, this man, Jesus, he has the nature of God. He is fully God and fully man. And the author of the book of Hebrews, he tells us that this man, capital M, with the nature of God, came to the earth to speak to us, to reveal the glory of God to us personally. And he came to do much more than that, but that's at least part of what he came to do, to personally reveal the glory of God to us. So that's part of this personal revelation story. Jesus, the Bible says, is the perfect personal revelation of God. He is the apocalypse of God. And that word apocalypse means the revealing. So he's the one who shows us what God is really like in human form. And I know that this is quite a claim that requires some evidence. You know, you can, you can make a claim like this, but you need to back that claim up with some proof. And we're going to get there. Remember, Paul says that God has given us an assurance of this. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. So that's where I wanna, I'm going to go eventually. I want to get to the point where I can show that there's some evidence beyond just what the Bible has to say about this. But this is what the Bible teaches, that God became a man and that God personally reveals himself to us, reveals his glory through Jesus. In the opening words of the Gospel of John, we read uh, that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is the title of this individual called the Son of God, whose name is in the New Testament revealed as Jesus. So the word was with God, the word is God, the word was active in creation, says John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, and then verse 14 says that the word became flesh. God became a man and dwelt among us that we would behold his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the teaching of what the Bible has to say about this individual, this man, Jesus Christ. But we're going to get to the point where I want to show you that there's, there's evidence that supports this. There's some pretty audacious claims in the New Testament, in the scriptures, about this individual, Jesus. But how do we know that this is true? But first, before we get there, another verse or actually another passage that really brings this whole idea to the surface again. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible have to say about this individual named Jesus? And this passage is a favorite of mine. It's found in the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. And I really feel like over the last year that I've gained uh, a whole lot more expertise in this passage. And Pastor Garrett here at the church, he would probably say the same thing. As a part of some of the work that we've been doing over the last year, we had to, we had to actually translate this whole passage 
from the original language. So I feel like I have a greater grasp on this than I ever have before. But, but look at what Philippians chapter 2, one of the very famous passages of Scripture, has to say beginning at verse 1. Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Great passage of scripture. And when we look at Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2, what we begin to see, and these aren't the only passages that teach this, but these are some of the key passages that teach this, but we see that the Bible teaches that God became a man to make the way for man to come to God. This is super important. The Bible teaches that God became a man to make the way for man to come to God. This is what we see right here in this passage. This, this individual that is called the Word, the Logos, in John chapter 1, this one who's called the Son of God in Hebrews chapter 1, this individual, Jesus, he became a man and he humbled himself for the purpose of making it possible for us to come to God. So these are the basics. Like I've been saying for a number of weeks in this series, first things first, this is the most basic level of what Christians for the last 20 centuries have believed and taught. And skeptics will say, you can't possibly believe these things. They'll say it's just not rational to just take what the Bible says and to believe it because these are far out claims. You are seriously saying that there is a creator God who made everything visible and invisible, who's outside of this creation. And then 2000 years ago, he stepped into this creation. For, for a lot of people, skeptics living in 21st century Western culture here in the United States and throughout North America and Western Europe and all around the world. For a lot of people, they say, this sounds like the stuff of myth. This sounds like the stuff of Marvel comic books. And you want me to believe that. You, you can't possibly think that I will rationally believe that. And it's possible that you watching this, you're one of those people who is skeptical. Or maybe you're a believer of these things, but you have a family member who's antagonistic or a coworker who is skeptical about these things. And they're the person that would say, you can't possibly believe this. This is not rational. But this is what Christians have believed for the last 2000 years. If you read any of the creedal statements of the church, if you read any of the catechismal statements of the church, if you read any of the deep theologies of the church, going back to the earliest church fathers, this is what Christians have believed. This is what Christians teach. And you may say, why? Why would you believe this? Well, because we believe that as far out as this may seem to be, there is assurance of these things. There is proof that these things are true. And your 
trust and commitment in these things is warranted. So you say, okay, then this is what the Bible teaches. How do you have these things be proved? How can I be assured of these things, that they are true and that they are worthy of my trust? How can I be assured that my faith and my commitment to this Jesus, as he's revealed in the Bible, is necessary and not just necessary, but not in vain? That's a key one right there. Why should I commit myself to this Jesus? Well, I shared in my last message that Paul, after he visited the city of Athens, as it's described there in Acts chapter 17, immediately following that, the very next chapter, Acts chapter 17, we see him giving this discourse at the Areopagus there um, in Athens. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went up to Corinth. So now he goes to the next largest city of Greece at that time, Corinth. And years after Paul's extended stay in Corinth, he sent the Corinthian Christians some letters, two of which we have in the New Testament. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, actually 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read this in the opening two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then right before that, in Acts chapter 1, we read this, beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 22, the Jews require a sign or request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul says, I left Athens, I went to Corinth, and my message in Corinth was simply this, Christ crucified. I determined to know nothing else except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the message of the cross, which is foolishness to many people in the world. 2,000 years ago is foolishness to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there on Mars Hill in Athens. And it may be foolishness to the person who sits in the cubicle next to yours or the desk next to yours at school. It may be foolishness to them. It's foolishness to people who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. So, okay, this is what the Bible teaches, but how do I know that this is true? Why should I believe this? Why should I commit myself to Christ, to trust in him? What would be the proof for this? Well, in the very same letter, 1 Corinthians, as Paul is saying, when I came to you, I preached Christ crucified. He says this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, powerful passage having to do with this very message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news about Christ crucified. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. So how do I know that my faith and my trust, my commitment to Jesus is not in vain, for nothing? Well, here's how Paul gives the proof that your trust in Jesus is warranted and your commitment to him is, it's a worthy commitment. He says this, verse three, for I delivered to you first of all that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I determined to know nothing else except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, so he was dead, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is that proof, the same proof that Paul spoke of when he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He says, God has given us assurance of these things by raising Jesus from the dead. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then notice this, verse four, and that Jesus, after his crucifixion, after his burial, after his death, he was seen after he rose from the dead by Cephas and then by the 12. Cephas is another, another name for Peter. And then the other disciples, apostles saw him. And then after that, he was seen, verse six, by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present time, but some have died, some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and then by all of the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul says, also, as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, and am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me, or was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, all these other witnesses, so we preach and so you believed. How do you know that you have not believed in vain if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures? He is revealed in the scriptures as the word became flesh, John chapter one, verse 14. He's revealed in the scriptures as the son of God who reveals the glory of the father in Hebrews chapter one. He's revealed as Jesus of Nazareth who came down, God who was equal with God in heaven came down to earth and died on a cross, Philippians chapter two. How do we know that our faith and trust in him, our commitment to Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures is not in vain? What is the proof and assurance that these things are true? Well, Paul's answer to that question is this message. And his, his answer was always this consistent message, whether he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, or he was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. To the intelligentsia at Athens, he says, God's assurance of these things is the resurrection of Jesus. And to the Corinthians, he says, my message is simply this. And the message of all the apostles is this. From the very beginning, it's been this message. Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the Old Testament revelation of God. And he was buried, dead, in a tomb. And then he rose again from the dead three days later. And then he was seen after that, after his crucifixion by the apostles and by hundreds of other believers and by the apostle Paul and by his half brother, James. All of them saw Jesus after his death. And then notice this, if this, the, the resurrection, if it isn't true, if it's not real that Jesus rose from the dead, what, what, is the mean, what does that mean? What's the implication of this not being true? First Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is what Christians have preached for the last 2000 years, that Jesus rose from the dead. If Christ is preached that he raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If people don't rise from the dead, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's logical. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching, our preaching that he is raised from the dead, is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have been found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, 
if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they've just perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitiable. Powerful words. The proof point or the breaking point of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Let me say that again. The proof point or the breaking point of the Christian faith is the resurrection. What that means is if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then everything that I am preaching is for naught. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then your trust in and your commitment to him is totally in vain, totally unnecessary. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then you might as well just be a humanist and live after the passions of whatever flesh you have. So that's clearly what the scriptures say. Okay, so there's a really big problem. Dead people don't seem to rise. It's not normal. It defies everything that we think we know. So other than what Paul and the other New Testament writers wrote, how can we possibly believe that this proves anything, that this is proof? Where, where is the proof that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I want to get to that. And that's primarily where I'm going to go next week. I want to talk a little bit about the historic and extra biblical proofs for the resurrection of Christ because there is evidence beyond just what the testimony of scripture says. What is the evidence that the resurrection actually happened? What evidence is there that Jesus rose from the dead? What are the implications of the resurrection if it is true? And how shall we then live? Practically speaking, what effect should this have in my life if it is actually real and actually true? But as I wrap up this week, let me say to the skeptic some, some key things. Maybe you watching this, you are a skeptic. And I understand your skepticism. And I think that your skepticism is not wholly bad. The claims of the Bible and therefore the beliefs of Christians are, shall we say, a lot to take in. And I get that. And I believe that these things are true because I have consciously considered the evidence. And I believe that an examination of the evidence supports the conclusion that there is a personal creator, a God who made all things seen and unseen. And he made us and all the things in this world in such a way that we would be compelled to seek to find him. And he revealed himself personally by coming to this world 2000 years ago as the man Jesus of Nazareth. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb, as the scriptures say. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And he was seen alive after his death by a multitude of witnesses. And as far out as that may seem to you as a skeptic, I believe that the evidence is there from the scriptures, but also in study of history, that these things are true. And we need to examine what the evidence is. And not only is the evidence there to show that these things are true, but also these things make more sense according to the evidence than the alternative narratives, the alternative stories that we're being told. What, 
what are the alternative stories and narratives that we're being told? Well, the leading story of our day is this, and I, I found this on a website for the Institute of Physics um, just this last week as I was thinking about these things. This is from a physics website out of the United Kingdom talking about what is the, the basic story that people believe today. Here, here's the story. Most physicists believe that the universe was born in a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. In it, in this Big Bang, the energy making up everything in the cosmos we see today was squeezed inside an inconceivably small space, far tinier than a grain of sand or even an atom. And then this unimaginably hot and dense cauldron, for whatever reason, it ballooned at a terrifying rate. And in the very first second of the universe's existence, our understanding of what was going on is surprisingly good. Even though we're 13.8 billion years removed from it, we have surprisingly good information about this, apparently, according to what these individuals say. We know that the concepts of time and space and the laws of physics very quickly solidified, solidified out of nothing, ex nihilo. They just came together out of nothing. All the physical laws, all of everything having to do with space and time, it all just solidified very quickly, ex nihilo. From there, order started to emerge out of chaos. This is, this is what scientific textbooks say. This is what physics textbooks say. This is what this physics website says, that from that moment, after everything and all of the universe, all matter and everything was condensed down to something the size of an atom and then it exploded forth. From that time, order started to emerge out of chaos, which is pretty fascinating without any inputs from the outside this chaotic explosion of the big bang just started to order itself into a finely tuned perfectly ordered physical universe with amazing laws of physics that all fit together perfectly and then through random chance and mutation over billions of years it pieced itself together to bring wonderful intricate look like designed sort of things out of chaos, it just ordered all of that. Contrary to the laws of thermodynamics, especially the law of entropy, the th second law of thermodynamics. So continuing on from here. So from the order started, or from, from there, order started to emerge out of chaos. First to take shape were the subatomic particles like quarks, and then bigger particles like protons and neutrons. About three minutes later, after this Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, scientists say, about three minutes after that happened, the universe had cooled to 1 billion degrees Celsius. We know this for sure because we have time machines, I guess. This allowed protons and neutrons to come together through fusion and form nuclei, the charge, charged cores of atoms. But after 20 minutes, so now we're just 20 minutes removed from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago from this website. After 20 minutes, the universe was no longer hot enough for fusion. What was left was a hot, cloudy soup of electrons and hydrogen and helium nuclei. The sta this stage lasted for about 380,000 years. Eventually, the cosmos cooled enough for electrons to pair up with nuclei and make the first atoms. After 380,000 years, they paired up to make the first atoms. It then took hundreds of millions of years for the first stars to form and to light up the darkness, and even longer for the universe to start to resemble anything that we see today. So this is the story that is repeated ad nauseum on hundreds of websites like that in countless textbooks over and over and over again. We are indoctrinated constantly with this 
confessional catechism of scientism. That's what I'll call this. This is a confessional catechism of scientism that we keep constantly hitting people with through Discovery Channel shows and History Channel shows and videos with TED Talks and videos on YouTube and textbooks and all these different things. 13.8 billion years ago, 13.8 billion years ago, all these sorts of things. We just keep driving home this confessional statement and catechism so people answer the questions. Where did I come from? Well, a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Random chance and mutation over billions of years. We descended from you know, lower level animals. We descended from these. Who am I? Well, like I said, you're an animal descended from other animals further, further down the phylogenetic tree. Why am I here? Well, you're here to perpetuate your species and to pass your genes on to another generation. Where do I go after this? After I die, where do I go after this? Well, back into the ground where your remains will be broken down by by other lower level organisms and consumed. So again, to the skeptic, I understand your skepticism about the narrative, the story of the Bible. The question is, is there evidence for these things? Because the other narratives, there's a lot of skepticism to be had about the other stories, the other narratives. That's a pretty far out story from that physics website and from all kinds of other scientific textbooks. Pretty far out story. So I understand your skepticism. And I would say to you, be skeptical of your assumptions and consider what the counterfactuals to your view may be. So that's to the skeptic, to the Christian. If you are a Christian and you're watching this today, I want to say to you, your faith is not irrational. Your beliefs can be based on evidence, not just the evidence of scripture. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the evidence that supports this seemingly far out claim that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead and he was seen by witnesses. Because listen, if it can be probabilistically proven, and you know, proven beyond a reasonable doubt, that Jesus rose from the dead, then it causes us to re-examine everything in this world and everything in the scriptures in a totally different way. So to the skeptic, I say, be skeptical of your skepticism. To the Christian, I say, I, I want to encourage you that your faith is rational and your beliefs can be based in evidence that can be actually examined. You were created by God for a purpose. He has made you uniquely you for a purpose. And as you find and fulfill the purpose for which he made you, your life will glorify him and find true joy and satisfaction. And of these things, I'm thoroughly convinced. I have taken a long time over the last many years to consider and examine the evidence. And as I do, I'm encouraged more and more that my trust in Jesus and my commitment to Jesus makes sense. It's rational. And I hope that you will begin to see those things as well as you consider the evidence. Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive from you your word and help us to comprehend these things. And would you reveal yourself, Lord? Because if it is true, as I believe that it is, that you are real, and then I'm not just talking out into thin air, but I'm actually talking to the creator of all things. If it's true that you exist, then you are able to reveal yourself to us by your spirit. And so I pray for anyone who's tuning into this broadcast, whether they're a Christian or a skeptic, that you would further reveal yourself to them, open their heart and their mind that they might see you by faith. Lord, come to trust you and commit them, their lives to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.